All right, can everybody hear me back there at least? Okay. Um, those of you, most of you have been here before, and so you know our method of operation, and we're here to study the Bible. That's our only purpose. That's our only agenda. And so uh, the MO, the method of operation, is we're going to have next week's lesson. We'll have questions for every week, and next week's questions are on your table. So if you look, it should be on the middle of the table, and uh, we invite you to get a copy of that and answer the questions. It shouldn't take you more than about 30 or 40 minutes, and you'll be prepared for the next lesson if you do that. Uh, so I think it'd be good for you, and we certainly appreciate it, because I'm. this is kind of like a lot of Bible studies are, you know, by verse by verse, by word by word. This is more of an overview. We're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to cover the whole book of Romans in this series, a 10-week series. We're going to cover the whole book of Romans. And so we're, we're kind of like, you know, if you're likening it to uh, aerial photography, instead of uh, a low view from a thousand feet, we're going to be up there about 20,000 feet looking down, and uh, it'll be a, a broader view. Uh, and so uh, we appreciate it. Uh, if uh, you continue to come, and it's open for anybody, this is a non-denominational deal. Uh, also, we have a website, charlietaylorministries.com, and you can... Uh, register to get all of the information, like if we change locations or whatever. We post the lessons, the questions, and everything on that website, and you can get them on that website. Uh, we just need you to sign up. You have to give it, sign up and give your email so it'll automatically send you the lessons and anything uh, else that we're trying to convey to you. Uh, or if you don't want to do that, you can just give me your email, and uh, I'll put it on there for you. That, that'll be fine, too, okay? Um, what else? Um, any, any other questions before we get started in the lesson? Yeah, we're going to be, thank you, we're going to be in this room from now on. And you can park... Uh, you can park in the parking structure, and there's a hall you can walk down right behind me and, and come in this back way. Or you can park on Villanova. Usually they're not going to have such a large group in the Great Hall, so there'll be more parking normally out front on Villanova. And you can park there and come right in the church that way as well. Uh, any other questions you have, you can corner me later. Or you can email me, uh, however you want to do it. All right? Uh, so we're here to study the, the, the book of Romans, which uh, has had an incredible impact on Christianity. It's been said that if you could just have one book from the New Testament and you needed to know all the doctrines of the church, Romans would be your book. And so uh, I think you're going to love this study. Uh, and throughout history, there have been a, a plethora of conspiracies and conspiracy theories Certainly more theories than fact, you know. Uh, and haven't you always wondered what ha really happened to Kennedy, for instance? We may just have the answer for you today in today's movie clip. And he mentioned we may never know the truth. Well, the whole human race wants to believe something different about God other than the Bible 
conveys. And so you've got all these world religions, you've got all these philosophies, and the brilliant people today would have you believe when it comes to the creation, when it comes to meaning and purpose, uh, life as we know it, the universe, how did it all happen? They'd have you believe it just happened. It has no cause. It just somehow happened out of nowhere and nothing caused it, right? Uh, but the, the book of Romans explains the fact that we are all responsible for knowing that God has done all of this, created us for meaning and purpose, to have a loving relationship with Him. God has uh, loved us from the very beginning. He gave us a free will in order that we would love Him in return. Unfortunately, part of having free will is what? You can't make somebody love you. They have to exercise their free will to love you. And of course, when you go back to the Genesis account, you see the problem there, right? The problem is, is that people willfully decided to rebel against God, go their own way, and reject the truth about God. And so uh, what Paul, who is the author of Romans, is saying is that uh, you must believe the truth in order to receive all the God's grace, all of his gifts, his righteousness, salvation, uh, justification, all that God wants us to have in that re loving relationship with him. It, it's got to be that you believe that you by faith receive him as your God and as your Savior and you live within that relationship for the reason you were actually uh, created. And that's Paul's whole point here, and we'll see the theme of the book of Romans right off the bat in today's first lesson in Romans 1. So if you have your uh, Bible there, please open it up to Romans 1 with me. Uh, historically, you know, it, it's all about receiving Jesus or rejecting it's one or the other. There's just two kinds of people in God's view. Those who have received his grace and those who have rejected it. And historically, there was a man that we've all heard of that we're all familiar with who was the perfect example of that struggle to believe or not to believe. Uh, a struggle to either earn righteousness on your own or to freely accept the righteousness that God, the justice, that God is offering you. That's the difference. And that guy, of course, uh, that we're all heard of who really had this struggle historically is Martin Luther. And so Martin Luther was a, a law student in Wittenberg, Germany in 1505, if you can take yourself back over 500 years ago. And Martin Luther was disturbed. It just he'd always been raised, you know, in the church, and he'd always been taught the prevailing theology of that time was that you earned your salvation, that you could only be righteous in God's eyes by earning it, and you earned it through keeping the church ordinances, right? And so Luther just never felt like he was good enough. He never felt like he was justified, never felt like he earned it, never felt like his sins were forgiven because their formula for 
for forgiveness was to do penance, was to ask, you know, go to confession, confess your sins, and then do penance. And so he got obsessed with this idea, Martin Luther did. And so he would go to confession like three times a day because he knew that it wasn't just the outward acts that God's aware of. He, God knows what's in your heart. And Luther, like so many of us, had all these lusts, you know, that would run around in his brain, greed and, and sex and all the other things that we all struggle with. And he would go and confess all of his thoughts and his feelings and all those desires that he had. And it just kind of really drove him crazy. Uh, and I think it was really God working on him internally and really convicting him because God had this great plan for Martin Luther. So let me give you the short version of what happened. Uh, he decided to drop out of law school and he enrolled in theology school. And he got his degree in 1508 and he became a monk in an Augustinian uh, monastery. And he became the most pious, hardest working priest they had. He he prayed more than anybody. He participated in all the ordinances more than anybody else. Very impressive guy, you know, as far as the church was concerned. But finally, by 1510, he was just going crazy because he was so convicted that he just wasn't worthy, you know, to go to heaven, to be saved, to actually say, I'm righteous enough to be in God's presence. It just really bothered him. And so his boss said, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to go to Rome and seek your penance and your forgiveness there. And so in 1510, he traveled to Rome. And in his own uh, book that he wrote, Confessions, he said, when I got to Rome, I was met by a plethora of relics, shrines, icons, and a whole lot of superstition." And he said of Rome, it is an abyss from which comes every kind of sin. So he found just the opposite of what he was looking for there in Rome. Uh, his son, I, I read a book that his son uh, Paul Luther actually wrote, you know, after the fact, based on what his dad had told him, his dad's testimony. And Paul Luther recounted the decisive moment in, in Martin Luther's conversion. He was told there in Rome, he was seeking penance, you know, what, what can I do to be forgiven and saved? And so they said, well, what you need to do, you need to go to the Lateran Church where the actual stairs that Christ walked up to the Praetorium to Pontius Pilate, we had the actual stairs there. Now how they got them there and how they lasted that long, I don't know, but that's what they told him. And they were called the Holy Stairs. And there were 28 stairs. And so what they were doing there, you could pay them a fee, and then they required that for penance you confess your sin, and then for penance you walked on your knees up the stairs. And as you walked up on your knees, you bowed down and kissed the stairs and prayed all the way up. And at the top, if you got to the top, if you were really tough, I guess, uh, you received a complete uh, plenary indulgence, it was called. So it's like, okay, now you're forgiven. 
And so he finally got to the top, and Luther painfully stands up, as you can imagine what that would feel like, and he was asked, well, now do you feel like you're saved from hell? And he said, no, but my knees hurt like hell. (laughs) And going back to Luther's book, he said, it was here that I was convicted in my heart of Romans 117. As I'm trying to do all this penance and confessing constantly, God impressed upon my heart because he, he was actually teaching the book of Romans in the seminary there at Wittenberg. And God impressed on his heart, the righteous will live by faith from, from Romans 1.17. And he just tossed around in his mind, he said, what does that mean? Who is righteous and how do you live by faith? And he really struggled and wrestled with it and, and uh, prayed about it. And finally, the Holy Spirit revealed to him, and I'll just quote what he said, this righteousness that Paul speaks about in Romans 1 is outside of us. It's not talking about our righteousness. He had been taught that the righteousness of God was God's judgment against our sin and sentencing righteously sentencing us to hell, right? And so that always scared him and always bothered him. It made him even angry. You know, that doesn't seem fair because I can't help myself, Luther said. I can't stop all these thoughts and all these imaginations that are in my head. So he finally figured out, the Spirit of God revealed to him that this righteousness here is, is the righteousness of God. It's that perfection of God. It's that holiness of God. And it's not mine because it belongs to God and can only come to me as God's gift. And when he says, I discovered that, the doors of paradise swung open to me and I walked through. Isn't that awesome? That discovery that just radically not only changed Martin Luther's life, but it changed the world. Because as you know, not too long after that, he began what is known as the Reformation, the Reform Movement that changed the church. And and eventually, he didn't even mean to start any kind of Protestant church, but that was the effect of the Reform Movement. Uh, And so this, this man that God revealed himself to and changed from the inside out, He said, I passively received the righteousness. It was not a righteousness of my own. It was the righteousness that God had given me through the atoning work of Christ. And it's received by faith. So by believing in what God was offering, which is that atoning work of Christ on the cross, so that my sins can be forgiven, Luther then knew that he was saved, he was forgiven, and for the first time in his adult life, his whole life, he said, I felt like all the sins that I was so worried about and angry about had finally fallen off of me. So an incredible story. He said the theology of the day was live by fear because they were constantly going around telling him you're all going to hell if you don't do this, this, and this. But Luther discovered the theology of Paul in the book of Romans is live by faith. 
Don't live by fear, live by faith. God has done something. God has accomplished what we could not accomplish on our own. Huge moment in his life, and through that knowledge and that belief and that faith, he was God's instrument to change the world. Incredible time to have lived in and amazing what he did. So let's talk about the book of Romans. As you look at uh, Romans 1, uh, just from time constraints, we're not going to go all the way back. You've got the introduction, and Paul tells you know, who he's writing to, the church in Rome. Paul had never been to Rome, Rome, Italy. He had never been to Rome. That was like the capital of the whole Roman Empire and uh, was the largest city. And there was a church that was there that had, we don't know exactly how it was begun, but we theorize that it was begun, if you remember at Pentecost in Acts 2, when all the different Jews from all around the Mediterranean world were in Jerusalem uh, for uh, Pentecost, and the disciples all preached the gospel, and it says they all believed, and then they all went home and took the, you know, their belief with them that some of the Jews were from Rome and they went back and started a church there in Rome. And so this is like, four, no, about 30 years later. So it's had time to build up and grow. And so there were probably thousands of Christians in Rome by this time. Still a minority, but, but a pretty big movement. And Paul had gone on three missionary journeys and and. At the end of his third missionary journeys, uh, he decided he was in the city of Corinth in Greece. Some of you have been there. And he decided that uh, from this point on, he would take an offering to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem, he would go to Rome. And so this letter of Paul to the church at Rome is like an introductory letter to them. I'm coming to visit you. They had probably heard of him like, you know, everybody had in that uh, church age. And he had certainly heard of the faith and what was going on there in Rome as well. So he wanted them to know that he was coming. And he also wanted them to have, before he got there, his, his, uh, an example of his teaching of the gospel. All the doctrinal uh, precepts that he was going to teach them when he got there. They would always already have it in writing. So this is kind of, he'd never met them, he'd never been there, but this is his introduction to them. And for us, it became, and for us is, a, an awesome, systematic theology of Christianity. I mean, all the Christian doctrines are laid out systematically here in the book of Romans. It's just terrific. And what Paul's going to do in chapter 1, after he introduces himself and, and talks about the people that, you know, commends them for their faith and their activity and everything, he tells them that he's coming, and he, uh, he says, I want, I want it to, uh, uh, verse 11, I long to see you in order that I may impart some spirit, my spiritual gifts to you and that you may also uh, have a ministry to me as well. And he wants them to know uh, that he, you can see it there in verse 13, I'm coming in order to not only teach you, 
but help you bear fruit, which is that concept of good works, spiritual growth, everything that's involved that comes as a result or should come as a result of believing in Christ and having your life changed. In verse 14, he says, I am under obligation. So why, why would this guy risk so much? Why would he go to so much trouble? Why would he endure all the, all the pain and the imprisonments and whippings and beatings that he's had? He says, I am under obligation. God has called him. He feels, he knows that calling and that God is sending him out on these missionary journeys. And he says, I'm obligation, under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians. In other words, non-Greeks, the rest of the world as well. Both to the wise and to the foolish and to the rich and the poor. I'm, I'm under obligation to all to preach the gospel. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are, in, who are in Rome. So he's been through the Middle East. He's been up into what was Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Then he's been over into Greece and come all the way down through Greece. He's been in Jerusalem, and he's preached the gospel and planted churches in all these places. So he's saying, now... I want the same thing. I want to see the same movement for, to Christ in Rome that's happening in all these other places. So he's fired up. He's eager. He can't wait to get there. Now, he has no way of knowing how he's actually going to get there. He's going to get there, all right. He's going to get there as a prisoner. He's going to be in chains, chained to a Roman soldier. But that's the way God works, very surprising ways, right, that you never dreamed of. And uh, so Paul is going to get there. But this is his letter of introduction. And he tells him, I can't wait. And when I get there, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And here's why. Why is he so eager? Why is he so fired up? What is motivating him? Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. First of all, remember what the gospel means means literally the good news. And so taken in this context, he's talking about the good news about Jesus Christ. I can't wait to get there and tell you the good news about Jesus Christ. The same good news that Martin Luther discovered, that God has this awesome gift to give you that will change your life, wash away your sins, and give you the hope of eternal life. You can know that you're saved and that God is going to resurrect you from the dead and you will spend eternity in bliss in heaven with him. I can't wait for you all to discover that. So he, he can't wait to get there. And why would he say, I'm not ashamed? Why would he say, I'm not ashamed? Why would, what, what does that mean? He's, think about where he's been and what's happened. All these other places he's been, they've mocked him. They've arrested him, they've beat him, they've made fun of him. He just came from Athens, and guess what happened? All those philosophers said, you're an idiot, you don't know what you're talking about, you're a nut, and they ran him out. So he's saying, that's fine. But I know that what I was saying is the truth. I have seen what God does in the lives of people. I've seen their lives change. I've seen the joy 
that comes from having Christ as your Savior. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For, and again, here's the purpose statement of why he's not ashamed. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul's purpose statement, I'm eager to come, I'm coming to you, and I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to you who are in Rome. And here's why. Because it's the power of God. Think about that for a minute, how awesome that is. The power of God. This is like written words in black and white in a book. Or it's the spoken word as we share the gospel with other people. And he's saying that those very words that you speak or that are on paper have a life unto themselves to change you, to save you. This is the power of God. This is just not some persuasive words that's, or rhetoric. God is working within this message of the gospel. And as you hear it, the Spirit of God is in your heart convicting you of the truth of it. And as you believe it, the Spirit of God changes you. There is an internal dynamic that comes from the gospel. It's awesome. That's why you've heard definitions of you know, successful witnessing. It's simply sharing the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Because it's not you. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how you present it. As long as you do, and God's is going to use it. God's going to do something because the power is in the message. When Paul came in uh, to Corinth, he writes in the first uh, chapter of his letter to the Corinthian church, the Corinthians. In chapter 2, he says, you know this is from God. You know how you know? Because when I came into Corinth, I was scared to death. I was alone. I'd just been beaten up and run out of about five towns in a row. And I stumbled in there scared to death. Corinth's a rough place. It's like New Orleans on, a, on its best day. <laughs> right? They had a term for, you know, for evil acts. Called it, well, you're acting the Corinthian. <laughs> when someone said you were acting like a Corinthian, you're, you're a depraved scumbag. So he walks into Corinth and guess what? All these crowds, you know, started gathering as he's preaching the gospel. What is this guy talking about? Who is this guy? What is he saying? And as he preached, it was the words, it was the gospel that affected, convicted their heart. And many believed. And Paul says, you know, it wasn't me because <laughs> I was scared to death. I was trembling, he says there, in fear. But the Spirit of God empowered me and empowered the message and people understood and believed the good news about their Savior. So it's the power of God for salvation, which is awesome. And then in verse 17, you see the, the theme of the book of Romans. For in it, he's talking about the gospel, for in the message, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
So just think about being in heaven in God's presence. What would, what would be your expectations? You better be on your best behavior. No, no, wait a minute. You better be absolutely righteous to be in heaven. You're not going to have any sinners in heaven, right? And so what, what he's saying, what Paul is saying is, how do people like you and I, how do we get that righteousness? We're like Martin Luther. I mean, if Martin Luther couldn't do it, I can't do it, right? I can't earn it. I can't become it on my own efforts by my own self. And so what Paul is saying is God wants to impart, impute, give his righteousness to you based on what Christ has done. And how do we receive it? God wants to give it, but how do we receive it? Paul said, I mean, yeah, Paul says by faith. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But you believe in it and you entrust your life to it. And then God gives it to you. Right? You know how the world operates, the world and all the systems in the world basically says, seeing is believing. I'm not going to believe something until I see it. But what does the Bible say? What does God say? Believing is saying. If you will believe, then I will reveal it to you. And if you study the Bible, you know, it, it you have believed, you know what he's talking about. It wasn't until after you believed in Christ that you started understanding the scriptures and all these concepts. Right? And that's why, you know, you hear that the song Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that changed a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's what he's saying. Before I believed, I couldn't, I was spiritually blind. I didn't know anything. I was lost. But now that I believe, God has revealed his truth to me. And that's why we, we study the Bible. Because it's got that wisdom and got that knowledge that we need to live successful spiritual lives. Right? And so he says, for in it, the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. So God reveals the truth. God gives us the truth of his righteousness. How? We receive it by faith. It comes to us by faith. Just as Martin Luther discovered as well. And let's look at four key words here. Let's go back over four key words. Number one word we talked about is power. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power to change lives. You know, we all want to be changed. That, that's why the, the, the self-help section in the, in the bookstore is so big. Because people want to be better. They want to be happy. They want to find the secret to becoming happy and, and having a successful life. So people want to improve. They want to change life. They want something better. But none of those books in the self-help section have the power in and of themselves to change their life, to give them what they need. And Paul's saying, but the Word of God has that power. You want to change? You want to be better? God is offering that to all of us. 
Okay, so that's power, very important. No other religion, no other philosophy, no other system can do that. Religions can't change you, philosophies can't change you, and none of these can remove sin. Only the truth from God, only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change lives and remove your sins. So the power of God does it. By the way, the word power there is cool. It's in Greek. The word is dunamis, which we get our word for dynamite. Right? So Paul's saying, it's dynamite. And it is. It's powerful. It's explosive. Second word I want you to pay attention to here is salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. We all understand what being saved means, the the idea there. So the result of God's power is to bring us that salvation. And the concept is kind of like you're in a state of being, you're in big-time trouble. Or maybe you're enslaved to something, and God delivers you. He saves you from it. In uh, first century Rome, half the population were slaves. They had a huge institution of slavery. And you could go and redeem, you could buy someone out of slavery. And that's the idea here. We were enslaved and God has bought us back. He's redeemed us. He's paid the price. Not with gold or silver, but with the blood of Christ. So we've been saved. Think of... uh, you're drowning at sea, and I think the whole human race is drowning. If you watch the news tonight, you'll agree with me. Right? I mean, we're so desperate, we're turning to the Trump. <laughs> Maybe he can save the world. Nobody else can. <laughs> yeah, huge, it's huge. So salvation, only God can do it. And then the third word, obviously, it's so important, is how we get it, faith. Now those words faith, belief, trust, they're kind of interchangeable. They're they're all a part of it. And just think of your daily acts of faith. Everything you do all day involves faith. You drink water from a tap, you just believe that it's clean. You sit in a chair, you believe it's not going to collapse. You drive across a a bridge and you you know that's going to support you. You come to lunch and there's actually food. (laughs) So we trust in in things and live by faith in every area of our life. But of course, faith in God's just taking it to a totally different level uh, because it's, it's that eternal life that we're talking about. It's so much bigger and so much more important to have faith and trust and belief in what what God has done for us. And uh, God does not tell us first to behave. People have it in their mind, well, boy, I really need to clean up my life and and, uh, really do a whole bunch of good stuff so that then God will accept me. No, no, God doesn't tell you to first behave. He tells you to first believe. 
And then when you believe, he's going to change your heart so that you'll actually desire to change. Isn't that that incredible concept? I mean, if you're like me, you grew up and your parents would go, get dressed, you're going to church. Oh, no. I have to. Yes, get dressed and get in that car. We always feel this obligation to do the right thing and have to go here or do this. Just like the guy calls you and would you give to my charity? Boy, we really need it. And you feel obligated because you, you know, you owe this guy. But this is something that from your heart you desire to do because God's changed your heart. You have a heart for it. And so you change and you begin to keep God's law and go to God's places and respond to his word because you love it, right? And so you first believe and then you're changed and you begin to know and understand and do and behave all these things that we all are seeking, clean up our life, right? And then the fourth word there that's uh, so important, obviously, is righteousness, the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of, uh, righteousness of God, the, the characteristics of it, uh, just real quick, uh, that righteousness is not based on our performance. It's based on the performance of God. It's based on what he does. He's the one that took on the flesh and died on the cross and paid the price, not me. So it's based on what he has done, his righteousness. And it's revealed in God's Word. This is where you find it. This is where you learn all about it, how you know about it. It's revealed in God's Word. Thirdly, it's acquired, as we said, it's acquired by faith. You've got to believe it, entrust yourself to it, live by it, commit yourself, so to speak. It's acquired by faith. And you know what's tough about that? That sounds easy, right? But you know what that involves? Submission. That's a dirty word. Submission. Doesn't that sound awful to y'all? But it's a beautiful, wonderful thing to submit to God. Because he's the creator, the sovereign Lord, all-powerful God of the universe. It's in our best interest to submit to him. Uh, The next characteristic, it's available to everybody. You know, we're not special. It's not just to the Jews. It's to the Greeks. It's not just to the Greeks. It's to the Romans. This is what Paul was saying, available to all, freely given through God's grace. And it's it's accomplished by what God has done. He's redeemed us. He's paid the price. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. See? You can know that you're saved. That's a concept that kind of blows people's mind because they've always been kind of had this idea, this image that we won't know till judgment day. And when we get there, you know, there'll be this set of scales and all your good deeds over here and all your bad deeds over here. And of course, mine will go boing. Thank goodness that's not it. Right? So we can know that we're saved now because it's not based on me. 
It's based on what Christ has done, what He's already accomplished for me. All right? And then lastly, it's paid for by His atoning sacrifice. A penalty had to be paid. And so what has God done? He, being completely holy and just, He's achieved justice at the same time that He's bestowed His love upon us. Think about that. God loves you unconditionally, but He's also absolutely just and holy. How do you rectify both of those? How can there be justice and grace as well? Only through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That's why in Acts 4, Peter in his sermon to the Sanhedrin says, there's only one name under heaven that's been given by God to atone for sin. There's nobody else that can do it. I can't pay for yours. I sure would like to. But it wouldn't do any good. You can't pay for mine. Only Christ led that perfect, sinless life, so he's the perfect sacrifice. Only Christ is God in the flesh, so his sacrifice is of infinite value. Only he could do it. And he's accomplished that for us. He's paid the price, all right? And then that, that idea of it being given, that, that, that's a tough concept to... Uh, Think of this, this image. When you were, uh, if you're like me, you had kids that went to college, and it was expensive. Anybody else? Just me? And so think about if your, say, your son or daughter called you, and you weren't there, and you got a voicemail, and it said, no mun, no fun, your son. So you sent back a message that said, so sad, too bad, your dad. (laughs) Now what would happen is, I remember my daughter, uh, she would call and it would be urgent. I've got to have it today or I'm going to be kicked out of school. So you've got to have it today? It's got to be in the account today. I'd have to go get cash and put it in the account. So what was I doing? She had the debt. But I took the money and imputed it. I put it in her account. It wasn't hers. She didn't deserve it. But I took it and put it in her account. Why would I do that? Because I love her. And this is what God has done for us. He loves you, so he has taken his riches and put them in your broke account. And so now you're rich as well in the spiritual sense, okay? So it's the great exchange. It's the greatest deal ever. It's like Trump says, I can make a deal. I'll negotiate them when I get through with them. They'll build a wall 100 feet tall, and they'll pay for it. It's huge. So it's the great exchange that God's offering. It's the greatest deal Ever, I mean, if you just think about it, wait a minute. I give him all my sin, and he gives me his righteousness. Great deal. What's the problem? Uh, What's wrong with the human race? They wouldn't take that deal. That deal's great. Why wouldn't they take it? 
Well, a story that you've probably heard, but I think it, it illustrates why the human race, the struggle they have and why they can't take that deal. It's, the guy, it's like the guy who was leaning over the Grand Canyon trying to look down and see the bottom, and he lost his balance and he fell over the side of the Grand Canyon, and as he's falling over, he grabs a tree branch, and he's dangling over the Grand Canyon. And he yells up, Help! Is there anybody up there? Help me! And finally a voice from heaven says, I'm here, I will save you, but first you've got to let go. If you'll let go, I will catch you. And the guy says, let go? (laughs) Yes, you must trust me. You must let go of your branch and let me catch you. And there's a pause and the guy says, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> we have trouble trusting. We have a trouble turning our life, our fate over to somebody else. But that's what it requires. And so as we go through Romans, you'll, you'll see this. That, uh, Paul is going to build this up and establish it. Next week is, is totally, this most awesome lesson next week. Whatever you do, don't Miss it. If you can't be here, read the lesson. It's, it's incredible. But he's basically saying the whole human race is accountable and responsible, knows about God, uh, and on and on. And, and what's happened to the world explains to you what's wrong with the world and what's happened and what God has then done about it. So let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word and how powerful it is. We thank you that it is your power in our lives to not only change our lives, but also to save us in an eternal sense. And we thank you for your provision in Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. Amen. And next week we'll have food. We'll be prepared. Thank you. Thank you.